Before I, before I give it to Carol, um, Josh, can you come on up? Is that all right? Um, so uh, Josh Bitework will be uh, bringing the word this morning, which is uh, super exciting. I think it's his first time preaching since pastoring here at Parker Ford, and we're so uh, glad. So for those of you with a long history at Parker Ford, you will know Josh well. Those of you who have come in the last few years, uh, Josh has been really instrumental in the story of uh, this church, certainly my own story, and so uh, really privileged and honored to have Josh with us uh, this morning. Carol, can you pray? I got it. Hey, it's great to be with you. Can you hear me? Yes? No? Brad, am I on? I'm picking one person, so somebody answers. Okay. Hey, it's really great to be back. It's been five years, almost five years, July, so this is a long time, and it's just, you know, we love this church. Shelby wishes she could be here. Um, She's sick this morning. Actually, that's not why she's not here. She just couldn't get away, Um, but then she got sick, so she's not even in church, and she's like, man, I wish I was with you. She's really down about it a little bit, so um, just so you know you're loved and other people are thinking of you all the time, we care, Um, and it's just great to be back at Barker Ford. Um, You know, I brought somebody with me, and you won't recognize her unless I introduce you. So Sophie is here, and she's five foot nine now. So if you were here before five years ago, I think she was four foot two when we left, and now she's five foot nine. That is my daughter. I didn't walk in with you know somebody I shouldn't be walking. Every now and then I go to a restaurant with with Sophie, and somebody like looks at us like, why is somebody who's in their mid forties with a young woman that age? You know, and I'm like. It's my daughter. I'm promising you. It really is. Okay. We just get that out of the way and we'll move on, okay? Um, So the other day, I'm going to read you a story. We're going to read John chapter 4 in a moment. And um, I've been back and forth between a a couple different ideas for this morning. But I want to talk to you. Just This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think it takes apart some things inside of us, tells us about our Savior in a way we don't often see. Um, and I'm going to try to speed it up because, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a passage. It's a, it's a big deal here. Um, Jesus doing some amazing things. But I want to tell you a story to begin. In 19, well, I'll say in 1929, there was a little girl born in Spring Lake, Michigan. And she was born to a Presbyterian family, which is important for this story. And uh, just a little girl born in 1929. You know what happened in 1929? The stock market crashed. Right about her birthday, the stock market crashed, and our country went into the greatest depression in our history. And she was born into a world that was materially poor, and she remembered her mom. Years later, she would remember her mother making bread for other people in the middle of the Great Depression, and that was one of her earliest memories. Fast forward to 1977. I was learning to walk in 1977, so that's where I was. Anybody want to remember where they were? 77? Okay. We won't go there. But this woman in 1977 was 48 years of age. And at this moment, she was working in a county clerk's office. And as she was in this county clerk's office, she started to notice something. She was in charge of uh, the maintenance and caring for the facility to some degree. And she started to notice that people were complaining regularly. In 1977, wasn't a good economic year in the United States, for the record. And in 1977, she started to recognize that the toilet paper was missing very often at the county clerk's office where she worked, or the, the township supervisor's office where she worked. And she started to go, what, what is happening to our toilet paper? You know, it's going missing all the time. And um, so they started to track what was happening. And there were these little old ladies 
who, and this is a friend of mine, and today she is a very little old lady, believe it or not, and she tells the story. She says, these little old ladies, and so don't be offended, because so, it's told by a little old lady. If you're a little old lady, don't be offended with the little old lady comment. Anyway, in 1977, she notices the toilet paper's missing, and she starts to notice these women keep coming in, and they tend to be little, and they tend to be old, and they are stealing her toilet paper <laughs> from the township supervisor's office, and she's going, you know, what, what we might all feel, there's a little bit of moral outrage, like somebody's stealing the toilet paper from the, the building in our township. And she has a choice at this moment. And she says, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, I think I can either start to develop like a security system for the toilet paper, or I can start to do something about it. And she starts to collect toilet paper and give it away out of the township supervisor's office. And then she starts to pray about her role in meeting the material need in the area where she lives, northwest Ottawa County. And that's the beginning of something. A few days ago, in our verse on the way to school for my kids, the verse was that famous John passage, ask and you will be answered, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. And I said, you know, when you start to ask God for things, you don't know where it's going to go. It, you know, you, you, you ask and you find out, right? And Noah says, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> he said, Noah turned 13 last Wednesday. He says, this doesn't work. You're wrong. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, I've asked that we have a sports car and we drive a Saturn. And it just, it still hasn't worked. And I was like, okay, well. And he knew he was having fun with me. I just in Noah's defense. And I said, I told the story about this little old lady who's a friend of mine now who said in 1977 she asked God for something. Today, that little ministry of giving away toilet paper grew to be this thing that has a free health and dental clinic and a homeless shelter with 40-plus people who live there every night in a material food ministry that delivers 700,000 pounds of food every year to this one county. And that's one little old lady praying. This church knows about little old ladies who pray, Right? You know, there's a 14-year-old on Bethel Church Road a few years ago, and she prayed, and then she married this guy who was a hardware store clerk, and then she got disappointed by that because she wanted to marry a pastor. She prayed another decade, and he became the pastor of this church, and he, you know, he died in 2015, and I was there for the funeral. Yesterday, we had her funeral, and the whole church is built to some degree on these things like that, right? Somebody prays, and something happens. So I want to tell you about what I do a little bit and tell you about what Jesus does about poverty because that's what I do. That's what I think about a lot of my days, and we're going to talk about Jesus. But I want you to hear all of that from the standpoint of this all happened because of one lady who prayed. I'm convinced. She prayed, and she's still there, by the way. She works every, um, every Friday. She spends time with clients, and she's 90 years of age, and she's sharp as a tack and drives herself in snowstorms to work. Um, 90 years of age. Her name's Dee Padel. Anyway. That's just neither here nor there, but that's how it all starts. I want to read to you from John chapter 4, as I said before, and before we go any further, we're going to read that passage. This is the woman at the well. You know the story, right? Everybody knows the story. I'm going to read it as quickly as I can, and we're going to start moving fast. Those of you who were here a few years ago might remember I talk fast, and I'm sorry for that. Um, hopefully, we're going to pray that God blesses you with the ability to listen fast today, because it's like... What, at 10.48? What time does this service get done? 10.49, 11 o'clock? Tim, Tim's already out, yeah. I tried to get Netzer to schedule Tim to be somewhere else this morning, and they just couldn't figure it out, you know? So he, he actually came to church. <laughs> All right. 
Matt, you're, I saw you walk in at the end, by the way, Matt. You didn't get away. We got to pick on Matt Willower a little bit. He's in from Alabama. So now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. This is really important for the story. Do you know what time of day the sixth hour is? That's noon. So it's just right at the moment when the sun gets to the very apex in the sky, right? It's right above him. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. That's literally true. And just imagine, there's 2,000 years removed from Jacob to this woman, and she remembers 2,000 years ago what was going on. Remember what's going on from us 2,000 years back? That's when this story took place, and she's remembering a story 2,000 years earlier in history. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Really important that you know it. She didn't want to come back to this well. She didn't like going to the well. She didn't enjoy this. If she could get the water without it, she would love that. Today we all take this, you know, we just turn on the tap or, you know unscrew this or that in our house, and all of a sudden the water comes out. And that day they had traveled to the well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you know now have is not your husband at all. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, watch her change the subject on this one. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Notice how often Jesus doesn't tell anybody he's the Messiah, and then he gets with one woman of a very different ethnic group than him in a very disadvantaged position, and he finally comes out, yeah, I'm the Messiah, no problem, I'll just admit it. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but I just like, you got to read this with some scandal in the tone. He's talking to a Samaritan, and he's talking to a woman, and what in the world's going on? What do, you see, what do you seek, or why are you talking with them? They don't ask that. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. May God bless the reading of his word. What I want to convince you of this morning is that what happens um, when the church engages mission and what happens when the church engages God at the same time 
it's the pure magic of what the church is all about. This is what we have in our DNA that transforms the world around us and transforms us at the same time. It alters us and it alters everybody around us. And that woman in 1977 who decided to pray watched as the church came around and built this whole enormous thing. And I think you're a part of that process. I think I'm a part of this process. And it works differently in every county in America. But wherever we go, what we need to look for is that place where the church is called by Jesus to jump into some sort of mission and watch the spirit engage and watch the transformation. Just watch those three things work together. Me, them, and him. Okay, I just want you to see that. Where you see me, them, and him, anywhere in your life, you have the power to see God be active and be powerful. So a few years ago, Love in Action, the ministry that I now serve, actually went through a really difficult time, and we started to realize that while we were good at resources, we were good at giving things away, we weren't good at people. And something needed to happen, or we weren't deeply engaging what Jesus is engaging in this passage. Notice he's not real interested in meeting her needs so much as he's interested in her. And what's really easy in ministry is that we get really interested in the problem that we're going to solve instead of the person with whom we're trying to connect. And Jesus is brilliant about connecting with people in this story. In our ministry, we started to ask questions and start to think about poverty. We started to look at it. This is a Bryant C. Myers quote, and it started to become one of our thought processes, and we prayed into this deeply, and all of our, our programming kind of changed around this thought. It says, poverty is the result not of just material lack, but of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom, and that word means peace in ancient Hebrew. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Where you see somebody with a lack of resources, you already see a set of broken relationships. It might be a year old. It might be a domestic relationship that went bro broken. Or it might be a racial situation that's been there from the very beginning of time. Who knows how long it's been there. But these hateful difficulties in our world birth material need. And I honestly, I've never sat with somebody who didn't have something, who couldn't trace that lack into a relationship that was broken. So let me tell you just a little bit more. Every day, every Friday when Dee, my friend, sits with a person who's in material need, I think she's doing something more than just meeting that physical need. I think she's actually connecting with them personally. This is a quote from Dr. Kurt Thomas, who's a therapist. He says, everyone is born looking for someone who is looking for them. I added the word born. You know, of all the things that have changed my life, I've moved to Pennsylvania twice, moved to Michigan four times, moved to Chicago once, and I've done a few other things in between. And I've moved across this country a few times, and I've taken different jobs, and I have engaged in different relationships. I think I've seen miracles. I think I've seen God right in this church do a miracle more than once now. And I can tell you of all the things that have changed my life, my life might have changed more than any other day more on uh, November 19th, 2003. You know what happened on November 19th, 2003? David, do you know what happened on November 19th, 1863? That was the Gettysburg Address. And to commemorate that, Shelby and I had a baby on November 19th, 2003. And this person entered the world, and she's with us today. Now she's five foot nine. But when she entered the world, she entered, like all of us do, looking for someone who was looking for her. And when somebody is looking for someone who is looking for them, and that's someone other than them, stops looking for them, we break. 
I just want you to have that in your mind. When you're looking for somebody who's supposed to be looking back at you, and that somebody stops looking and turns away and looks the other direction. Maybe you're a person who's a minority in a culture, and the culture stops looking at you. Maybe you're a person who's engaged in a relationship, a marriage, and the other person stops looking at you. Maybe you're a child of somebody who gets involved in addiction, and they're looking at their heroin, and they're looking at their alcohol, and they're not looking at their children anymore. This is what breaks us right here. And that means to meet material needs and to do ministry every time. What we're actually called to do is to be the someone who that person is looking for that's actually looking for them. Every human being needs to know they belong someplace. Now, God invented a covenantal institution to do that. Do you know what it's called? It's called the church. That's what we do. It's, there's a few others. Marriage does it. Family does it. But church is the one that does it. And it does it regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a male or a woman, or an old person or a young person. You're supposed to fit. And this whole thing is supposed to work. And what goes broken inside of human relationships is supposed to be attacked this way. But church becomes a whole bunch of other things as well, right? It's a, it's a, it's a contract. It's a bunch of business relationships. It's a number of different things. Everyone is looking for someone who is looking for them. So this woman at the well... People who were supposed to be connected to her stopped looking at her rightly. And maybe she stopped looking at them rightly. What was Jesus doing? He became the person who was looking for her when she was least suspecting it at a well in the middle of the day in the middle part of Israel. So I want to tell you just a little bit about poverty when in the ancient world because I think it explains some of what happens here. And I just believe this is what God's called me to. If you followed my life, I know some of you think of me as a pastor, but in every pastorate, I've always had to do with material need. You just see this thing. I'm, like, drawn to people who need help. Like, it just is part of my calling. I can't get away from it. It's just part of my DNA. So this is ancient Israel. Up here you see Galilee, and here you see Samaria. This is where this story takes place. And here's Judea down in the south. Now, let me just tell you about the geography of the ancient world. This plain right here is called the Shephala. And the Shephala is the best grazing land in Israel. And if you want to grow great livestock, that's where you have a farm. Up here is the Jezreel Valley in Galilee. And if, even today, if you look on a satellite map, it is absolutely green and beautiful. They grow bananas there and, abs- and amazing lettuce and all these different things all across this valley. If you want to catch fish, you go to the Sea of Galilee up here. And if you want to be smart, you go down here to Judea, where Jerusalem is and where the academy is and where the cultural centers is. This is the New York City of Israel in the ancient world, if you can follow that Jerusalem at the very center of it. And if you want to mine for resources, you go down here to the Dead Sea, salt and all these minerals and all that stuff. So this woman is right here, and she's a part of an ethnic group disconnected from all the others. And guess what? She couldn't travel to all those other spaces. My bet is that she struggled with material need. And the reason why is because she can't grow livestock stock here, can't get fish here, can't grow anything here, can't get minerals here, and can't go to school. So what does she have left? A lot of people fit within this range. She's had a broken set of relationships, and now she's sitting in the, in the center part of Israel, disconnected from all the other parts, and Jesus finds her hiding out and feeling isolated. This is just a look at the different pieces, and we call these demographics, but I think they're probably each indicative of relationships. Each one of these is a set of relationships that can either be there or not be there, and when it gets broken and something goes missing, what happens is a lack of shalom, and usually something materially goes broken as well. So let me just tell you about this woman for a few seconds. Jesus meets her by the well in the middle of the day, and the first thing he does, what what did he ask her? Do you remember? He asks her for a drink. Why does he ask her for a drink? 
What's that? He's thirsty. It's really obvious. He's really thirsty, and he doesn't have a jar. They do have a well. They have plenty of water, but between the two of them, they only have one jar. Now, this is a Jewish male in a Jewish nation. He is absolutely in a position of advantage, and she is absolutely an ethnic minority and a female in a disadvantaged spot, and he asks her for what the one thing that she can bring to him, the one thing he's lacking that she has, a jug. And let me just tell you that Judas, who was the treasurer of the disciples, almost assuredly had enough money in his pocket to go down the street and buy a jar. You know, It wasn't that Jesus couldn't have bought this. He was looking for the one thing that would dignify and empower her. So he asks her a question and invites her to become part of his provision instead of saying, I just want to meet your need. He doesn't enter the relationship saying, I know you're a broken person and I want to heal you. That's not what he says first. He says, I need something from you. And they engage in this conversation. And she's like, how are you relating to me? I'm a Samaritan. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. In fact, Jews don't talk to Samaria. A few decades before this, the Samaritans kind of got into a terrorist mode, and they attacked the Temple Mount and killed a bunch of Jews, and they were kicked right out of Jerusalem. You couldn't be of her ethnic group and even go to Jerusalem in Jesus' time. So now she's pushed aside, and she's out here, and Jesus is not offering her something. He's asking her for the one thing that he needs that she has. I want to tell you, I think this is a way of empowering somebody from a different group of people from ourselves. He's saying, I want you to know that I need you, that this relationship can be a bilateral connection. We're partners in this, and I need water, just like you sometimes do. And we're here in the middle part of the day, but let me just ask you, please help me. And the woman says, how are we talking? And then he pulls her in. This is Jesus. He's brilliant. He can do this with all sorts of stories, any number of different tales. You know, have you ever noticed how hard the parables are to understand? He's pulling us all in with these stories, you know, the, the um, 99 sheep that get left to go find the lost one. We remember these things, the good shepherd stories, the, the little widow who's dropping in a couple, two pennies, and the, the, he turns it into a story, and Jesus brilliantly pulls us in. So here he starts to pull her in, and he says, listen, I can provide water that's living water, and it can just well up within you. It can go for miles. You can never have to come back to this well. And what do we know about her? What is her response to that? This is where she, she pulls on that. There's a moment when every Kirby salesman gets their, their foot in the door. You know that Does anybody remember Kirby salesman when they went door to door? That's a vacuum cleaner for those of you who are too young for this. Or Amway salesman. If you're an Amway salesman, don't get mad. Anyway, um, when, when you, they walk in, they, they get their foot in the door, and they start to latch on. They say, I'll bet you your cleaning product does this, or I'll bet you your vacuum can't do that. And they get you to some moment where you ask a question, well, that is different. That is interesting. And when you turn that moment over, when you start to engage in that connection, they know they've got you. And they pull out the Kirby, and they do this great thing where they can suck all the dirt out of your carpet right in front of you or whatever it is. Well, Jesus is at that moment when she says, I want living water. And what she really wants is real water. She's thinking, I am somebody who's disconnected from the people in this town, and she has a problem with the people in her community because of her morals because of her life, because of her brokenness. And she's saying, I want to be left in my living room. I don't want to ever have to leave my house again. I'm actually so shame-filled that coming outside is difficult. That's why I'm here in the middle of the day when no other women are here. A few years ago, I had this moment. This guy walked into Love in Action and he said, I need to work here. And I'm like, okay, why do you need to work here? That's a little questionable. And he says, I need to work here because I have community service hours that I need to work out. Now, that, that happens a lot with us. We have people who, they get a second DUI, or they do this, or they do that. And usually, there's, these are nonviolent crimes. 
And I said, so how many hours do you need? He said, I need to work 360 hours. Like, whoa, we, we, we're going to hire you, and we're not going to pay you. <laughs> this is going to be a, a job for this guy. He's going to work here. He said, yeah, I, I need to work that many hours off. I said, what do you do? We're going to do a background check. Just tell me what you did. He said, I robbed a bank. I was like, well, you can't work here. And we don't take volunteers generally who do violent crime. I said, you must have had a gun to rob that bank, and we can't take you in. He said, I didn't. I didn't have a gun. I said, what do you mean? He said, I only did two years because I actually didn't commit a violent crime, but I did rob a bank. I said, how did you get the tellers to give you the money if you didn't have anything to get the money from them? And we had this whole interesting conversation. Just imagine you're talking to a bank robber. You know, It was an interesting moment for me, too. And I'm sitting there listening to him. We're engaging. And he says, well, listen, I have a problem. And I'm like, oh, OK, this is where it's going to get honest. And he says, I have a gambling addiction. And he said it in a Louisiana accent. I was like, oh, you do? You have a gambling addiction? He says, yeah. In fact, I got so in debt to a loan shark that I borrowed all this money to bet all of the money, and then I lost all of the money that I couldn't pay the money back. And he said, I just realized I had to run for my life. And he's, I was like, where'd you go? He said, well, I went to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Just, have you, do you know geography? Because this is an interesting map. But let me just tell you, if you put the whole United States on a map, he's almost to Canada, and he was almost in Mexico before. You know, He was on the Gulf of Mexico, at least. And he's traveling all the way north. He's trying to get as far as they catch him in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And they say, listen, here's a BB gun. Rob a bank. And it's not a real gun. It's just a BB gun. And he takes it in there, and he gets the money. They actually give him the money because they don't know it's a BB gun. And the judge, when he gets sentenced, says, well, this isn't a violent crime because you couldn't have really hurt anybody with a BB gun. <laughs> they give him the money. He goes pays the loan sharks. The loan sharks are happy. They go back to Louisiana. But the cops aren't happy, and they bust him. And then he gets a couple of years. And then he comes to us when he gets out of jail, and he says, can I work for you? And I all of a sudden realized, I think our rules do allow for this because he doesn't want to hurt people. And he is somebody who has committed just one of the most crazy acts of felony, felonious acts in our society. But he hasn't wanted, and he was a really nice guy. I mean, honestly. And he was a huge, enormous guy. And he's like, would you please take me in? For the next three years, he volunteered. Every Wednesday, he was on a front desk, and he answered our phones. And when he got done, I was walking across the parking lot one day, and he came and he found me. And we're in this kind of snowy parking lot, and he started to cry. And he said, I just, nobody else would take me as a volunteer. Nobody else would need me. Nobody else would say that I had anything to offer because I'd committed such a, a, an atrocious crime. No other nonprofit would take him. He said, and the Church of Jesus Christ has taken me. He said, I can't actually buy this story about Jesus, but I do believe that you guys love me. And he just started to weep sitting there in the parking lot. You know, this whole thing where we have somebody who's different from us, I don't know, I've never robbed a bank. In fact, the last thing I stole was a Starburst pack from a, uh, uh, it's like a Walmart in Michigan. When I was about six, I did do this, and my mom caught me, and I had to take it back. I'm just not a thief for the most part, but this guy is. And when we engage somebody who's different from us, what do we have to do? We have to have a place to need that person. And what I realized about what I do is I have the opportunity to offer people a way to be meaningful. And for the next three years, he spent time being meaningful. And at the end of it, his heart had moved so much. That's what Jesus does with this woman. He says, listen, can I need something from you? We tend to start our ministry focus with a sense of we're going to give something to people who need us when we really need to offer something where they need to be needed. Most of us need meaning in our life more than we need anything else.
Jesus goes to the next thing and he starts to engage in this conversation about gender. And she says, why are you talking to me when I'm a woman and you're a man? And the relationship there again turns. And notice that she has five husbands in her history. And now she's not married to her husband. And this whole conversation happens. She's actually avoiding all of these other people that were in her community, especially the women. You know, women in the ancient world go to the well in the morning or in the evening. You've heard that, right? And they go in packs because there's bandits and there's bad people out there. This woman is absolutely willing to risk all of her physical life in order to go out there and get the water that she thinks she needs. Jesus restores all of that just by making a connection and just developing a relationship. And when she starts to feel threatened by the conversation regarding her own morals and who she's married to, she turns it to religion and she says, well, you... You, Jesus, worship in Jerusalem, and your people don't even let me worship there, so I don't have access to God. How am I going to be a moral person if I don't have access to God? Philip Yancey tells a story about a young woman in Chicago when he lived there who was a prostitute. And she goes through this whole process of looking for help, and she's developed a chronic illness that's going to take her life. And at some point, her therapist says, How in the, why in the world did you never go to the church? And she says, the church? Why would I ever go to church? Those people wouldn't ever want to like me. And she has this whole storyline in her heart. Well, that's what this woman thinks. And Jesus says, no, listen. Do you remember the famous words he says? God is spirit, and he wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. You're not going to worship him on a mountain in Samaria. You're not going to worship him in Jerusalem. You're not going to worship him here or there. You're going to worship him all over the place because God wants to be worshipped in here, in your heart, and in your head, with your life, with your whole self. And then he offers her God himself. And he says, you can have access. It used to be that only Jews would have access. But eventually, this is going to be a religion that turns into something where you have access to God. And of course, she does. Now, let me just tell you about this last little bit. This is a woman who's avoided her whole town. She's avoided all of the women of her community by being there in the, new, in the middle of the day. And she's avoiding the men, I imagine, for other reasons. There's this whole brokenness where she's very, very isolated. What is the storyline that Jesus offers her? We know the transformation occurs because she actually turns into the religious leader of her community. For a very few moments, she goes back to the town and says, let me tell you about this guy who told me everything I ever did. Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. And I think he might be the Messiah because he saw it inside of me. And then he plucked me into this place where I could hear him and understand him. And then I wanted to engage all of you. This is a woman who didn't want to go talk to all these other people, and instead, now she does. Now she wants to connect with them. Now she wants to relate with them. And she becomes the evangelist who turns this whole town around. Jesus spends the next two days ministering to them. The community that she's broken apart from, the God she can't connect with, the religion that she feels different from, the ethnic minority sense that she just says, I can't connect with a person that's that different from me, the, the gender gap that's there, all of it goes away in this one conversation. Do you follow that? I know it's a little complicated, but it's just absolutely beautiful if you can see it. Now, for a second, I just want you to stop and think, what is the takeaway from this? Because it'd be easy to go, let's go find a way to minister to somebody someplace. That's not what I want you to hear first. I want you to see how brilliant Jesus is. Do you catch a, a glimpse of how he can look at somebody who is absolutely built in a way that opposes him? There's barriers between them all over the place. And somehow he is finding a way across all of them with words. You know, when she presses the moral line and there's this kind of sense of the fact that she's been married to all these guys and 
he could throw the book at her, but he just walks away from that part of the conversation, moves into the religious conversation where she indicts him for not letting her have access. And then he says, yeah, no problem, I'll let you in. There's this whole conversation. Now, here's the rest of the story. A few years later, the disciples do this thing that they're supposed to do. Remember that Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. Remember the cities and the places he says they'll go. Jerusalem, Judea, and then the next one, Samaria. And there are these disciples, and they travel north, and they end up in the center part of Israel where there's this ethnic minority group called the Samaritans. And they say, do you know about Jesus? And guess what the Samaritans say? Absolutely, we know all about him. And they're like, you can't know about him. You're Samaritans. I'm putting some words into Acts, but they're there someplace. They say, do you know Jesus? And they say, absolutely, we don't know all about him. What do you mean you know all about him? Well, there was this woman, and she told us, you know. This woman becomes somebody who is goes from a place of being a disadvantaged person to being like the apostle for their town. And the disciples then lead them into the understanding of the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead that they didn't know. They'd met, ran across Jesus, but they didn't know the rest of the story, so to speak. And this, church, or this community gets a church. And all the way through this, transformation occurs. One last little bit. So I want you to just picture this, this little word shalom. How many of you lack peace in your life? Okay, come on. I'm going to close your eyes and bow your heads and ask God to make you honest for a second, and then we're going to ask this question again. How many of you, we'll just say it in past tense and present, like how many of you have lacked or have in your past lacked or in your present are lacking peace? Okay. I'm looking for any liars, but most of you got your hands up now, okay? Um, The thing about us is we're built kind of fear-based, right? We are terrified people. I forget who it was that said we live lives of quiet desperation. Men, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Is that, it's either Thoreau or Emerson. I'm looking at you, Dave, because I always think you're smarter than me. You don't remember. Okay, well, whatever. We live lives of fear, right? And in 1 John 4, it says perfect love casts out fear. Now, I want to tell you that love is just one of these things that we got to think a lot about. It's real active. It's not enough just to say, well, I love you. You know, I saw some of you walking in. Juan Carlos, two days ago, I wasn't sure I was going to make it out here or not, and I was saying something to Shelby, and I was thinking, and I said something. I I ended up saying a word. I said, I walked into our bedroom, and Shelby was sitting there, and she didn't look happy. I said, are you happy? And she says, yeah, I'm happy. And I said, good, because if you're happy, I'm happy. And she had this look on her face. Juan, are you smiling yet? That is Juan Carlos's line, if you don't know it. He always said that when I was here. And I realized, I love Juan. That's a feeling. I love Juan Carlos. That's an easy connection. I know I love him because I'm still quoting him five years later. You know what I mean? And we have this covenant or this connection and this relationship. But the reality is love is, that's not the love we're talking about here. The love that casts out fear is a perfect, absolute attack on the enemy as he's sitting there in front of us. And let me just tell you, you're going to find it easier to, to conquer your own fears when you attack something other than yourself. When you see a problem out there that you need to solve, some toilet paper missing maybe in a bathroom someplace, something that you could get mad about and instead you say, I'm going to engage this and say, my job is to solve this problem. My job is to find the people behind it and to connect and become the person that they're looking for that's looking for them. The one person in their life that smiles when they walk in the door. Yesterday I got a text. I was at Brad Henry's house and I got a text and it said, do you know Tommy Shields? And I said, yeah, I do know Tommy Shields. He died yesterday. 
And he'd been, I, I don't know how he died yet. This is one of our volunteers slash clients, all at the same time. One of the people, and Tommy struggled with addiction. He'd, had, he'd been clean for 14 months, and I don't yet know what happened. What I do know is this, that as I've engaged Tommy, my life changed, and there's this connection. And as he engaged me and others of our, connect, of our people at love and engaged the church, the Spirit of God had started to work in his life. And you could see this transformation. You could see peace be restored at the middle part of his life. So I just want you to picture at the top of this for a second. Instead of worship, put God. And instead of empathy, put another person. Just say others. God, others, and then you. And I just want you to think about this for a second. Because we get this wrong. We tend to think of religion as someplace between you and God first. You know, you can love people without loving God, but you can't love God without loving people. Do you know this? Lots of people are empathetic, just naturally. They're born that way. They want to love another person. They might do it inappropriately, but they have a compassionate heart. There are those people among us who do. There are those people among us who don't, too. But when you start to engage God, you have to have a compassionate heart. And if you engage God long enough without engaging your compassionate heart for another person, you'll stop engaging God. You need to see him be powerful. And when you grow fear-based in your life, one of the things that needs to happen is you start to love another person to watch God be active in them, and it transforms everything. So let me just ask you this. If you're a person who lacks peace, where are you going to find it? I lack peace. I just want you to know. I've got all sorts of things inside my internal life that lack peace. What I find out is when I engage somebody else who is in need, and I somehow find a way to love them, and then I ask God to be powerful in that situation, I watch for transformation to occur, and I watch an altered relationship and start to engage this process where Jesus is, is, is actually involved with us. When I see God, another person, and myself in the room, I get changed. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's all these pictures of gifts, right? There are these gifts of service, gifts of help, gifts of giving, gifts of mercy, gifts of this and gifts of that. Things that we bring to the body of Christ. Each one of you has those things. They tend to sit just kind of dormant in our lives, like, like mammals that are hibernating in February or something. They tend to sit where they're, they're, not, they're not out there, they're not engaged until you look at another person and you need them. And the reality of most of our connectedness is that when we engage another person, there's a risk involved in that, right? You love somebody, they can let you down. You care about them, they can turn on you. Four years ago, when I was just starting out, I was running the food for this ministry, the food side of love, and this guy walked in the door and he said, listen, I have a problem, I need, I'm homeless. And I said, okay, well, you can't get in our shelter um, probably real quickly. Let me, let me walk through a, a process with you to hear what you need. And he said, I just can't stop smoking weed. I just love it. And he, he was really honest. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You really like smoking weed a lot. And he's like, yep, I just like smoking weed. And he's walking in the, and he, he, I said, okay, listen, we'll take you in as a warehouse worker. You won't be unhomeless at this moment, but at least you'll be warm during the day. And he had a place to go at night. He was crashing on somebody's couch. And um, we walked through the process where every day we would talk about marijuana to the point where he left marijuana behind. And he walked free for enough days that he dropped clean. And we had to keep dropping them over and over and over. Finally, he drops clean, and we're all excited. We, we're, we celebrate this moment, you know, like somebody's able to get into our shelter. He gets into the shelter, and he's there for probably six months, and he has a bad moment. He gets to the point where he's working, and he's got in a car, and he's growing towards independence, and he ends up walking out. One day, he just leaves. Altogether, just disappears. Breaks my heart. I text him the first day. Text him the second day, the third day. I text him for about 30 days in a row. Every day, I'm texting him, Rob, when you coming back? When you coming back? When you coming back? 
And he's like, not one text, 30 days, 60 days. I'm texting him every week after 60 days. And he's still nothing. I text him for a year, a whole year this guy's missing. I never hear from him. And um, last year I got really sick, um, had this viral thing in my head that just was terrible. I was in the hospital, and I was so sick. And I get a text from a number I didn't know. And it said, hey, I'm walking down Henry Street in Muskegon. Can somebody pick me up? And I'm like, who are you? I don't, know, I don't know this number. He says, oh, right, I've changed numbers. This is Rob. And he said, I decided I need to change my life again. Can you help me? And I couldn't drive at this point. I was so sick, I couldn't drive. I had to call somebody. I called my dad, had him picked up. And um, Rob went through the whole marijuana process again, got rid of it again, moved into the shelter again. I saw him at Christmas, and he was sitting there, and he was just furious. And this is Rob's big issue. He smokes weed because he has a problem with anger. You know, marijuana is not most of people's issue. It's mostly something deeper, right? So he has a real problem with being bitter. And I said, why are you mad? You look angry. He said, he told a story about his sister and how mad he was. A few days later, we, we talk all the way through that. I said, you're going to have to forgive. You're just going to have to let go, or this thing is going to eat your life, and you're going to be so twisted. Two day, a few days later, he all of a sudden, I, I get a text. He says, listen. I want you to know, and, and this conversation, by the way, it ends poorly. He actually gets up and walks away from me. I'm like, he's going to disappear again. I'm going to text him for a whole other year again. And who knows how this whole thing's going to turn out. Well, a few days later, I get a text, and it says, listen, I want you to know I called my sister. And we're going on a road trip for Christmas. Instead of me go, staying in the homeless shelter, we're going on a road trip, and it's just going to be great. And I just want you to know I listened, and the word, something changed to me. A few days later, I get a text, and it's him um, with a photo with him and his sister. And a few days after that, I see a picture of him, and he's got a new car. Somebody gave him a car in our ministry, and he's got a job, and it's starting to just take off. You know what I'm saying? What I want you to hear about that is my life is so much better for the last four years of this one guy. We've helped thousands of people in that time, but my ability to connect with him and empathize changed my life empowered me, helped me to see a loving relationship in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have. And my identity is different, and I'm watching God transform a human being. So if you're not excited about where you're at with God this morning, anybody not excited about where they're at with God? I mean, you just wake up and go, man, I'm grumpy today. Engage something. Attack something. It doesn't have to be a material need. Attack some situation out there, out there someplace, and go after it. And invite God to be with you. And then listen to somebody who's different than you. These three things have to be a part of it. You have to bring you. You have to listen to somebody who's different than you. And then you have to listen to God. When those three components are all involved in a mission, I want you to know your lives will be changed and fear will run and love will prevail. If you sit in a corner and say, I'm just going to wait for God to set me free from whatever it is. I'm convinced you'll never be free. It's in the attacking and the blessing of other people, attacking the problem and blessing another human that we see change. Believe it or not, I'm cutting a whole bunch of things out. Everyone is looking for someone who is looking for them. How many people live in this area? Do we know? A few hundred thousand? There's 22,000 in Pottstown alone, right? 22,000 people in Pottstown. How many people of those 22,000 are looking this morning for somebody who's looking for them? How many people walk through life thinking that nobody, they don't matter to anybody else? What is in this church, what is in your life, what is in your heart, what God has already done in you is the answer to all of those problems. And when you see that whole thing become a part of your life's work, it transforms you. I don't always know if it transforms the other people, believe it or not. Sometimes you don't be poverty. 
I think God hates them. We still don't win every day. We don't always beat addiction. We don't always beat homelessness. We don't always, those people don't always come to Christ, whoever those people are. But in the process, God has ordained a way for the church to be changed and altered, where the love of God fights in our hearts to bless other people, and it changes everything. I'm going to pray. We're going to be done. Thanks for letting me just share my heart for a few minutes. It's fun. I hope you love Jesus more because of this, more than anything else that you could do. I hope you see Jesus. I mean, he's the greatest pastor, right? 1 Peter 5 tells us that. He's the greatest priest. Hebrews tells us that. He's the greatest king. Matthew tells us that. He's the greatest this, greatest that. He's also the greatest non-profit worker ever. I mean, he's just the greatest social worker, greatest caseworker, greatest whatever. He was just brilliant. And sometimes you just got to sit back and listen to these stories and go, I never knew he was that good from that angle, you know. And this story just reminds me of that. God, we just bless you. Um, and we bless you because of Jesus, you know. In, in my mind, he's all of our caseworker, right? He's all of our... Um, we all needed somebody to meet us where we were at, and all of us are broken, and all of us have had this needed transformation. God, you have worked powerfully in this man to alter um, our lives. And not only did he die on a cross and raise us from the dead um, with his resurrection that we're all going to see in our future, not only do we have a hope that goes forever, but we have this ability to be part of that hope. And when we engage it and alter our lives to be a part of it, God, when we serve you, in short, it changes us so mag magnificently. What I would ask about this church is that you don't leave it unchanged, that you don't let our hearts sit on the sidelines, that you don't let us sit on the bench and somehow think you're going to meet us where we're at first. Sometimes we got to get moving, and sometimes we have to alter our life and engage in some mission outside of us, and I would just pray that that would be absolutely transformational. Love wins. It's absolutely certain. It's just a sacrificial, deep love, and it takes a long time to get there. God, I would ask that you would move in this church and bless it with compassion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We agree that you are greater in every component, every leadership capacity, every position. You are the true king. You're the true pastor. You're the true shepherd, the true apostle, the true Lord, the true healer, the one true savior, the one true Lord. Father, thank you also for the invitation to remember that your transformation in our lives so often flows when we reach a place of compassion towards your sons and daughters that bear your image. Moved with compassion so often in the Gospels, it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Father, here at Parker Ford Church, we are so unbelievably privileged just incredibly, incredibly privileged. And I mean that physically, emotionally, all the blessings that we have, God, all, all the, the cars and the buildings and the jobs. And, and it's not that we don't struggle with needs, but we're incredibly privileged, God. And we have this hope within us of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that, God, um, we would be changed um, by your word that we would uh, break, our hearts would break for what breaks yours, that no matter who we interact with this week, God, that we would be seeking the shalom of the kingdom of God, the peace of Christ um, in each situation. Thank you for Josh and Shelby. Thank you for their children. Thank you that Sophie could be with us today as well. We bless them, God, the remainder of their trip. God, we speak your shalom over them as they continue to minister and seek, and as, as Josh continues his trip, God, we just pray over the conversations he's having, over the prayers he's praying, God. 
Um, we pray for their marriage. God, bless them. God, for their children as they grow, protect them. Thank you for the BioWorks. Thank you for their story here and their story there in Michigan. And, and having moments where we can reconnect is really special. So we thank you for that. God, we pray all of this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.